I think that's a good word. How many know that we are tempted to shrink, right? When we live counterculturally and we're holding on to the message of Jesus. How many know the message of Jesus is countercultural? We're going to talk about that today. That's where we're going all summer. You can see on the graphic behind me the countercultural teachings of Jesus. We'll get to that in just a second. I want to welcome all of you who are joining us online today, all of you who are sunburned or tired from Canada Day and you didn't get out of bed in time for church. We miss you. We pray that God will be with you wherever you are. All of you that are in the house, uh, good on you for being here after a hard day of celebration yesterday, I'm sure. Hey, uh, have you ever purchased something that didn't add up to your expectation? Like, have you ever got something, maybe you got, you got the box and the picture on the box didn't match what was in the box? Have you ever had that? What was on the outside didn't match what was on the inside? Or you ordered something online thinking it was one thing and it didn't come out the way that you uh, imagined? Uh, imagine the disappointment of this young girl whose mom got her a kiddie pool uh, to enjoy for Canada Day. And, uh, you know, they got the box. It says it seats three. I don't know what's happening. Just a, look at the disappointment on her face right there. That is so disappointing. Uh, maybe after church we could go play a game of soccer. Hopefully none of you bought this soccer net uh, for us to play with, right? The expectation doesn't match the reality of what's on the box. Uh, any of you ladies ever ordered clothes online? How many know shopping online is a risky business, right? How many expectations of what it's going to look like on the mannequin versus what it's going to look like on you? Here's a lady who bought a dress online. She had grand visions. I don't know if it's the dress or the, the model. I don't know what it is. It just doesn't look quite right. I read a crazy news article this week. I don't know if you read this or not. Uh, about a family in Calgary who were left shocked and disturbed after discovering that a stranger had been using their family's pictures off of social media uh, to, um, to portray and to deceive others into thinking that they were a struggling single dad. Did you hear about the story? This family in Calgary, they, they were shocked to find out that for eight years, a man had been taking their family's photos of their young daughter and posting them on his social media as though that it was his daughter that he was raising. Can you believe that? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Everyone's like checking their social media right now. What are my privacy settings? How many know that image doesn't always reflect reality? People try to convey something about themselves that's not necessarily true. Now, you think that's a crazy story. You think that's an isolated incident. But uh, this has actually happened to me. I have a picture of myself here. And uh, this is, I don't know what this is, circa 2007. This is young Jer here. And uh, this is before we had selfies. Someone took this picture of me. But I'm on a missions trip leading worship. And uh, we were on our way to Winnipeg for the week with our youth group. And that's where this picture is from. And uh, you can imagine. Imagine my uh, shock or disbelief, and uh, you know, back in the day when Facebook was really getting big, uh, they used to have a section, and it's called People You Might Know, right? You ever been on social media, and it's suggesting to you people who are friends of friends, or people that you might want to add to your friend list, and so this one day, I was scrolling through the list of people that I might want to add to my friend list, and I was going, no, 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 I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But people who you might know. And the algorithm was suggesting people and I was just scrolling through the list when all of a sudden a photo caught my eye. And it was this photo. And I was thinking, 
that's my photo. How is my photo related to someone that I might know? And so I looked at the profile to which this picture was attached and it had a different name and it had a different, but I'm looking at this going, this is my photo. I was like, what is happening here? And so then I looked at people that this person knew that I might know and this person only had one friend. And it was a girl I went to high school with. And so I went on her page and I was like, what is this all about? And I discovered that this girl from my high school, I don't know if I should be flattered or freaked out, I'm not sure which, but she had just like put together this whole profile of her imaginary boyfriend. And she had used my photo, it's not flattering. I don't know. And, and so they had a name, I was looking at her account, and her account would tag this person off to see the boyfriend this weekend, celebrating Canada Day with a boyfriend, and she had a whole fake story going with this fake boyfriend on her profile page that was using my photo. And so I quickly sent her a really kind and Christian letter that said, please cease and desist from using my image for your imaginary boyfriend. And... Uh, and I don't ever know what happened to her since. <laughs> Image doesn't always reflect reality. It would seem strange and even crazy to us that someone would have such an unfulfilled need in their life that they would go to such great lengths to appear a certain way or to project an image. I want to be seen. I want the boyfriend so badly I'm going to make it up and I'm going to steal Jared's picture to go along with it. They go to this image to create an image, uh, to this effort to create an image that's not based in reality. Isn't that amazing? Image doesn't always reflect reality. How many of you have ever modified your behavior? Or you've edited your words or shaped your image based on who was present or how you wanted to be viewed or how you wanted to be liked, right? We, we all have, we've all done this. We've all portrayed images of ourselves to other people, uh, and if we're honest, we hope that there are images that they'll like and that they will approve of, right? Some of us, we care more about the approval of other people than, you know, we care more than others, but some of us have a real sense we need the validation of people. And so we live in this highly image conscious culture, don't we? We shape our image, we curate, curate and edit our image on a daily basis, right? We want to be seen and perceived positively by the people uh, around us. We do it in the workplace, right? We, we're always filtering. What am I going to wear today? Do you guys don't want to know a little secret? I have a brand new suit at home in my closet that I've never, I've never, owned, I've never worn it once. And, uh, and this suit was the suit that I bought to wear when I came to preach the call at Bethel Church. I got a new suit, I was gonna wear it, and I was gonna come and preach in my new suit. I don't wear a suit very often. And I quickly discovered that suits in the Okanagan are not really a thing too much. And so I have this suit, you know, yeah, Kevin's got his shorts and his Hawaiian shirt over here. And that's more the vibe here in the Okanagan. And so I have a suit that I haven't had the opportunity to wear yet, right? But we are kind of editing ourselves based on the people around us, right? We're, we're always thinking about what we're gonna say or not say. How many, when, when you go to family gatherings, right? There's certain things that you don't talk about when you're with your family, right? You don't want to go down that rabbit trail. We're always editing and we're conscious that we want to be perceived positively. And we call it putting our best foot forward, right? 
putting our best foot forward. We all want to put our best foot forward, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, you know, uh, the saying goes, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So we want to put our best foot forward. But I saw another quote this week by a lady named Sonia Parker, and she said, almost everyone will make a good first impression, but only a few will make a good lasting impression. What she's saying here is that once you get through the filtered photos and once you get behind the, the mask and the facades of politeness and kindness, once you get past that, you get a glimpse of people's authentic, genuine selves, the reality isn't always as flattering as presented, right? How many know that the person beside you this morning, that you know the best, you see them behind closed doors, as amazing as they are, they have things that they don't want everyone else to see or to hear about, right? And so uh, we all do this. We get a glimpse of reality. And so photos, uh, they don't reflect always the reality. And sometimes the facade we put on doesn't always uh, project what's going on behind the scenes. Reputation or our image is who others think you are. Your reputation, we all want a good reputation. It's who others think you are, rightly or wrongly, positively or negatively. Your reputation is based on people's limited perceptions of you, right? People see what they see. They don't get to see the whole picture. And so their perception is based on a limited sampling of your life. And it's also going through the lens of their personal appraisal. They're putting their image and they're projecting their thoughts and their biases towards your reputation. Have you ever thought about yourself uh, or, or thought, you know, someone who you thought likable, you know, and, and um, what are they trying to say here? It was a long day yesterday. I have a little sunstroke maybe. I don't, try, I don't know what it is. What I was trying to say has you, have you ever found someone to be more likable than your first impression, right? You got to know them and you thought, wow, I totally misjudged them, right? They're a great person. Maybe you, the inversely, and you thought, they're not who I thought they were. Maybe you got to know them and you discovered that they weren't uh, really uh, matching your projections of them. Now, the problem with curating our lives to impress other people uh, is when we base our identity and value on their acceptance. The problem with that is that it's so subjective. It's subjective to their perception and not founded on the whole picture of our lives. Rightly or wrongly, positively or negatively, we measure people based on our limited perception through the filter of our personal uh, appraisal. And so as much as we might try to influence people's perception and their image of us, in the end, it's really out of our control. Maybe you felt you've been mischaracterized. Have you ever felt mischaracterized in your life? You know, maybe had a wrong view or perception or their judgment against you uh, wasn't really warranted. It wasn't really based on who you were. I love this quote uh, that I found by Charles Spurgeon. It talks about when someone's misjudged you. He says this, he says, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> if he charges you falsely on some point, be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation and you would be no gainer by the correction. Basically, I'm worse than you think I am. So whatever you think is wrong with me, good thing you don't know the real me. <laughs> or you really have something to talk about, right? That's what he's saying. Isn't that the truth? 
reputation or image is based on who others think you are. Character, on the other hand, has been described as who you are when no one's looking. It's who you are behind the scenes. See, character isn't what you do when people are watching. Character isn't what we say depending on the crowd we're with. Character isn't edited in the hopes that other people will like and affirm us. Character is who we are when no one's looking. It's the unfiltered, unedited, full picture of our heart and our mind. It's the real us. I think character is who God knows you to be. Reputation is who others think you are. Character is who God knows you to be. And so we live in this image-conscious culture where we're always uh, curating and editing our lives to put our best foot forward. And so God's calling us not to be image conscious, but to be character conscious as Christians in his kingdom. Not aspiring for other people's approval and appraisals, but looking for God's approval uh, alone. Now here's the thing, the character God approves is counterintuitive to us oftentimes. The Bible says that we're born with a sin nature. This character that God is looking for is counterintuitive to a lot of our natural instincts. And not only is it counterintuitive, but like Carrie just said, it's also countercultural. It's countercultural, not the commonly accepted setting or default of society. And so if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 5, we're kicking off a new series today. Uh, it's our summer sermon series. We're calling it Summer on the Mount. And uh, we're going to be looking uh, over the next 10 weeks at this portion of Scripture famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in the sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we're, we're going to see here some of Jesus' most uh, counter-cultural teachings, counter-intuitive teachings about our character. Before we get there, let's have some context. Matthew chapter three, we see that Jesus in Matthew three is publicly identified by his baptism in water. Uh, That was an amazing video, by the way. That just brings a tear and a smile to my eye all at the same time, seeing people give their life to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, he's baptized, he's publicly identified by John the Baptist as the Messiah, the Holy Spirit, God speaks uh, and ordains him to ministry in this moment. And then in chapter four, we see that Jesus is immediately taken to the wilderness and tested and tempted uh, by Satan uh, to forsake his God-given assignment, to give up and to take cheaply what God wants to do in and through his Life. And so this is followed by the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. And the Bible says that the message Jesus began to proclaim is this. Repent of your sin and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's the message Jesus began to proclaim. And as he did it, it says that crowds began following him. As they, as they heard this message and they, as Jesus taught with this spiritual insight, unlike any of the other religious leaders that they've ever encountered, they began to follow him and they began to listen to his teaching. And not only that, Jesus began to perform incredible miracles amongst them too. In Matthew 4, 23, it says this. So that Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness, and news about him spread as far as Syria. And people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. 
See, as the news of Jesus began to spread and the crowds began to follow him, they wanted to hear his teaching and they were hoping for a touch of the miraculous in their own life. It was either a miraculous touch for them or they just wanted to be a part of it. How many love a crowd, right? If there's a crowd forming, you want to be a part of it. Anybody? Yeah, okay, well, Holly and I, we're in that crowd. Where's all the people, like the crowd forums, and you're like, let's go. It's time to get out of here, right? Well, the crowd is forming. It was getting bigger. Nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd. And so the crowd is getting bigger. And as they were gathering around him, we come to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says, one day, as Jesus saw the crowds gathering, he went up on the mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. So we look at this, we, we know that Jesus says he's talking to his disciples, but we know from the rest of the story that the crowd is also listening into what Jesus is saying. And, and so there's an important uh, message, there's some important information you need to know uh, about this crowd of people. This crowd of people was stressed out and tired. How many could relate to that today? You're like stressed out and tired. These people were stressed out and tired. Everyone that was listening to Jesus was stressed out, worn out, trying to earn a living. They were working hard to make ends meet. They were working hard to try to get ahead in life. And so they were just trying to earn the good life. How many know of ancient history? That is the, the nature of society. There's no social services. There's, there's just work hard, earn your way, and get ahead. They're trying to earn their way. Everyone is at, in that position. And not just some of the religious people were not just stressed out and worn out trying to earn a living like everyone else, but they were also exhausted trying to please God. Their religious understanding had them trying to do good in order to look good, in order that they would be good. That was kind of the, the, the gist of their uh, theological thinking. If we act right and we look right, then God will consider us right, and we're trying to earn God's favor. And so everyone's just tired and stressed out trying to earn their way, earn, earn their way through life, uh, earn their way with God. And it's into this setting, Jesus begins his most famous teaching. And, uh, and so we get here to this longest, most complete sermon that we have of Jesus on record, like I said, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to be looking at this over the next uh, 10 weeks. But how many know that every good communicator knows you need to start your presentation with a hook, right? You need something to grab the listener's attention, to pull them in, get them to want, wanting to know more. And Jesus, he does it perfectly here in Matthew 5. Verse three, he said, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. How many want to be blessed today? Who wants the kingdom of heaven to be yours today? You know, this stressed out and tired crowd, they, they certainly did. And so while they're pressing in, they're not wanting to miss anything. They're, they're hanging on to Jesus' teaching. They're looking for a blessing. I, I know the disciples wanted to be blessed. They had left everything, their jobs, their careers to follow Jesus. They're, they're like, yeah, Jesus, we're in. Whatever is blessing, uh, whatever blesses us, we want to be a part of it. And so uh, Jesus begins to expound the principles of the kingdom uh, of God. And what he's describing here is unlike anything they'd ever heard before. He's always describing a new way of looking at life, looking at yourself, and looking at God. And so he's talking about the path to blessing. And so the crowds are following him because 
it says in the previous chapter that he had opened some eyes physically. He had performed some physical miracles. They're like, we want more of that. But as they were pressing in to see what else Jesus would do, Jesus was wanting to open their eyes spiritually. He'd opened some eyes physically. He wanted to open all of their eyes spiritually. And so he sets this hook. He starts talking about blessing and the favor of God. Who wants the blessing and favor of God in your life? Of course, we all do. And so as we study these statements, these beatitudes, the the word beatitude you might have heard is really just from the Latin word uh, beatus, which just means blessing or happy. The thing that we recognize here is that they aren't really describing different types of people. They're not really describing different conditions of life. That's what we think of when we first look at them as we dig deeper. Uh, The kind of people or conditions that God blesses, these aren't ideals to check off. If I just do each of these eight things, then I will be blessed. What we actually see are eight character qualities that every believer should embody. That these character qualities are actually enabling us to experience the presence of God in our lives. And as we enable, uh, are enabled to experience God's presence, we are also able to live out his purpose. And the natural result of that is the fulfillment and the blessing of God. To be blessed, the word in Greek is makarios. And it means supremely happy. But not in a way that's based on emotion Uh, It's not based on feeling the right way. Uh, It's not being based on circumstances going according to plan. It's about being filled with this inner satisfaction and contentment. So Jesus' listeners, their ears perked up when they said how to be blessed. And, and, And he had them hooked. And then they heard him say who would be blessed. And you know, this is, they're like, blessed are the poor. And they're like, hallelujah, I'm in, Right? They're like, finally, you know, it's like I won the lottery. I'm going to be blessed by God. But while the Bible addresses caring for the poor, nowhere else in Scripture do we actually see a connection between, you know, being uh, um, in, in material poverty and the blessing of God. It's not what Jesus is saying here. Sorry to disappoint you. Some of you are like, yes, I won the lottery. No, that's not what it's saying. A better rendering of this, some translations say, are blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember, these aren't types of people or conditions that people find themselves in, but they're character qualities. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is a state of being that comes when you recognize your insufficiency and your need for help. It's the state of losing your pride, letting go of self-sufficiency, and really coming to the end of yourself. Have you ever had someone say that to you? Like, get over yourself. Right? When we get over ourselves and we come to this place of saying, God, I'm insufficient to live the life you've called me to. Being poor in spirit is the state of embracing daily your dependence on God for all your needs. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And it's only in this state that we're perfectly positioned to receive his kingdom. I heard a quote one time, it said this, that God only fills empty hands. God only feels empty hands. When we're holding on to our own pride and our own ambition, our own self-sufficiency, then our hands are full for God to entrust us and to bless us. But when our hands are empty and we simply come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have nothing to bring to this relationship. I have nothing to bring to your kingdom. And Jesus says, that's when you're blessed, when you come to God with your empty hands. 
You ever seen a monkey trap? You should go look this up. I was going to put a video, but I didn't today. So I was sorry to disappoint you. If you look up a monkey trap on YouTube, uh, what they've found is that uh, countries where they have monkeys, uh, monkeys are, are a little foolish. What they do is they basically just get a jar with a tight neck on it, and they put some fruit in it or whatever the monkeys want to eat. And what they've discovered is that when the monkey puts his hand in the jar to grab whatever it is that he wants to grab, that he will not let go of it. And basically, in making a fist, he becomes unable to pull his hand out of the jar. All he would have to do is let go of the thing to pull his hand out, but the monkey won't do it. The monkey won't let go of what it is that is. I think that's a good picture for us today, that sometimes we're holding on to our lives. We're holding on to our pride. We're holding on to self-ambition. We're holding on to our self-sufficiency. And as long as we're holding on to those things, we can't be free. Can't be free to walk in the fullness and the fulfillment that God has for our life. We need to let go of that so that we can uh, remove ourselves from this trap, this trap of pride. It's the trap of pride, really. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Let go of your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. I love this verse. This is a great verse for parenting. You know, when you don't know what to do, you're in the perfect position for God to bless you. Right, when you say, God, I got nothing uh, on the parenting front, you know, can you teach me and show me what to do? How many, God, God answers that prayer. If you're a boss or you're a manager at work, you're like, I got nothing. I don't know how to lead these people. That's where you're in the prime position for God to bless you. Well, you're a pastor of a church and you're like, God, I got nothing, right? There's nothing in me that makes me worthy of being a leader. It's simply saying, God, would you speak through me? Would you give me the word? It's this daily reliance on Jesus that leads to blessing. You know, most of us have spent most of our lives trying to become anything but poor in spirit, right? And we do that. We encourage each other. We give ourselves a pep talk. Believe in yourself. You have what it takes, right? You can be what you want to be and do what you want to do. And we give ourselves those pep talks. And, and I'm not talking about, uh, you know, having low self-esteem, but at the same time, we don't really need self-esteem. We need God-esteem, Right? It's not about you having what it takes. I don't have what it takes to be a pastor. I'll just be honest with you. But God has what it takes for me to be a pastor. And so I go to him daily and say, God, would you give me what it takes? Right? As a parent, I don't have what it takes. I say, God, daily, would you give me what I need to lead my kids and my family? Right? God has what it takes. And as we lean into him, uh, we are poor in our spirit, but he blesses us. See, the opposite of being poor in spirit is being full of yourself. When you're full of yourself, it means having a misplaced sense of your value and your worth. You're ascribing your value and your worth to your accomplishments, to your achievements, to your abilities, to your social status. Anything other than what God has given you in Christ Jesus makes you full of yourself. 1 John 2, 16 says, For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. Being full of yourself is pride. And, it's, and it fuels our desire to be self-sufficient, self-important, self-exalting. And how many know when you feel like you are on a good place in yourself, you become entitled? Look what I deserve. Look what I've earned. Look what the world owes me because I am great, right? 
self-sufficiency. Ultimately, the problem with pride is that when you're full of yourself, there's no room for God. We're actually pushing out the one that we need the most, Jesus Christ. Max Licato, he put it this way. He said, the heart of pride never confesses, never repents, never asks for forgiveness. Pride is the hidden reef that shipwrecks the soul. Did you know that God practices social distancing? Do you remember social distancing? Back when we weren't allowed to fist bump or high five or hug or whatever. Some of you love that um, back then. God practices social distancing. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. God practices social distancing. But not because he wants to. What he's actually doing is giving you what you want when you're proudful. When you're prideful, you're saying, God, I'm keeping my distance from you. And God says, okay, I'll respect that. I'll respect you by keeping my distance from you. But then listen, it's not what God wants. It's not his heart. He yearns to be close to you because James 4, 7 and 8 says, humble yourself before God, come close to God, and God will come close to you. That's the Father's desire is to be in close relationship, close proximity with you. Humility is another way of saying poor in spirit, which opens the door for us to receive the blessing of God. It's the basis, uh, really, on which all the other Beatitudes are based. When we get this first one right, we realize that this is the heart and the character on which all the other seven Beatitudes rest. And so I spent a lot of time going over this first one and Pastor Holly said that I shouldn't tell you, you know, that I was gonna do that. You know, you're looking, well, there's seven more. And so, you know, how much more time do we have? I'm not gonna go through them all in this depth today. But I'm gonna skip over them a little bit. Uh, the next one in verse, um, let's see, I told you I'm suffering from sunstroke right now. I was like... You ever been out in the waves all day and then you just kind of feel like you're like, ooh. Anyways, too much information. But I just had a moment. I was like, ooh. I was like, felt like I was on the water again. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you. Just being honest. This is me on the inside. I'm not unfiltered, unedited. This is just me. All right. Let's get back to it. Let's look at these other uh, Beatitudes. Verse 4. God blesses those who mourn for they will be comforted. I love this verse because I know that God comes close to the brokenhearted, those who are mourning. And, uh, and by the way, I, I meant to pray uh, for um, the Friesens, uh, Norm and Ruth. And uh, we're gonna pray. Well, let's pray for them after the service, okay? Uh, you might have heard that their son had passed away on the weekend and he'd been battling cancer for quite a while. And so actually, can we pray? Let's pray right now, is that all right? We're family. We're family. Let's pray right now. Father God, uh, Lord, I just pr come before you, and I lift up our, our friends, our family. Lord, I just thank you for Norman Ruth and for their family, God, for their daughter-in-law and their children. Lord, as they are grieving right now the loss of their son, Jeremy. God, we know that this has been a long uh, battle, Lord Jesus, and that their faith and their hope, their trust has been fully in you. God, that they've been praying towards healing. They've been praying for your will to be done. God, in these moments, Lord, we don't always understand why healing doesn't come the way we desire. Lord Jesus, we hate the ravage of sin and sickness on this world, and we know that you do too. And so, God, we just thank you today that Jeremy knew you. 
We just thank you, God, that our uh, faith is assured that he's in your presence right now. Lord, free of pain and sickness, so that he's been healed in the ultimate way. And yet those of us that are left behind, God, we grieve and we mourn, we feel that loss. So we lift up our friends. We pray right now for Norm and for Ruth. God, we just thank you for the joy that exudes their life. God, we just thank you right now for your Holy Spirit who's so evident in them. We just pray that you be close to them. Lord, would you just speak to them? Would you comfort them in a way that's so inexplicable in this situation? God, that they would know your peace. We just pray right now for Jeremy's wife and his children. Lord God, we just pray. Lord, that even in the midst of this horrible situation, God, Lord, we just pray that your mercy would be fresh each morning. We just pray that your voice would be so clear, drowning out all the doubt, drowning out. I pray for his kids, God. Lord, that this wouldn't shipwreck their faith. I pray that in the middle of this, Holy Spirit, that you continue to speak and to show yourself to them, God, that they can have that same hope anchored in you that their dad had. We just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, thanks for that little family moment together. God blesses those who are mourned, for they will be comforted. And we know that, and yet I don't think this is exactly what the scripture is saying. Because like I said, this isn't about God blessing people in specific life circumstances or facing specific things. What he's talking about is mourning our sin. When we're mourning the spiritual brokenness, God says, that's where I come in and bring blessing and comfort. 1 Corinthians 7.10 says, the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. And so when we come to this place and say, God, I'm empty, I'm poor in spirit, I'm mourning my sin. We're positioning ourselves to be in the place that God wants to bless. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Humility is about having a clear-eyed view of yourself. How do I fit into this world? How do I fit into God's creation? How can I serve God and serve others with confidence, knowing that it doesn't somehow diminish me? The world we live in says when we walk with humility and service that it somehow puts us beneath others. We walk with confidence knowing that I am not diminished in being humble and serving others. You might have heard the saying, nice guys finish last. Jesus is saying, nah, that's not what happens. The nice guys inherit the whole earth. Isn't that amazing? God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, or another translation says righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. Justice, in the physical sense, is a worthwhile cause. We want to see things done rightly, but how many of you thirst for justice on, this, on the physical level? Justice is elusive. If your cause of your life is justice or social justice or whatever it is, then it will always be elusive and lead you frustrated because how many know that the sin and brokenness in the world will never be fully rectified in Jesus, until Jesus makes it right? So if we're thirsting for justice, on the physical sense, we'll be left uh, unfulfilled. But what he's talking about here is spiritual justice, uh, righteousness, relationship with God. We see that outlined in the Bible. Legal justice is right standing with God. We see moral justice as having right character and conduct. And social justice, scripturally, is God-honoring interaction with community. That's what it means to have spiritual justice. 
God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The Bible talks about time and time again, the way we've been treated by God is the way we should treat others with mercy and forgiveness. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. How many know that sin clouds our ability to hear and even perceive God? Sin has a way, I love to say this to my kids sometimes, sin makes you stupid, right? It clouds out, it actually brings a barrier for us to see and to perceive God, but purity leads to clarity. The more free our hearts are from sin and idolatry, the more clear we are to able to see what God sees and values what God values. The last two, blessed are those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. And then this is what Carrie was getting into a moment ago. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you're my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. You know, friends, we live in this image-conscious culture and Jesus is saying it's about something bigger than that. It's about being character-conscious as Christians, not seeking the appraisal of others, but seeking the approval of God alone. So over the next nine weeks, we're gonna be journeying through the Sermon on the Mount together. And I love what theologian John Stott says about this. He says, here is a Christian value system. It's an ethical standard. It's religious devotion. It's the attitude to money, ambition, lifestyle, and network of relationships, all of which are totally at variance uh, with those of the non-Christian world. And this Christian counterculture is the life of the kingdom of God, a fully human life indeed, but lived out under divine rule. This morning, I'm gonna invite you, you've been really great, I'm gonna invite you to stand where you are today. And uh, as we do, I want to just pray over us. You know, we talk about being the light of the world. How are we the light of the world? We're the light of the world when we let the character of Christ inform and transform us. It's really about being born again, being made new, being made into Jesus' image. This morning, would you just close your eyes and bow your heads with me for a moment? And I just want us to be living in blessing. And we live in blessing when we empty ourselves and we say, Jesus, come make me more like you. I'm dependent fully and reliant fully on you today, not trying to earn righteousness, not trying to earn salvation, not trying to walk in my own strength, but letting you lead and guide me each step of the way. Jesus, today for my friends, I pray, Lord, that we would be walking in this blessing, God, that we would be positioning ourselves not to earn your blessing, but by positioning ourselves in the character of Christ and in the character of your kingdom, your word says your blessing automatically follows. When we live for you, we walk in your blessing. We walk in your fulfillment. We walk in your peace. Not something we need to strive or earn for, Lord Jesus, but we are simply being in relationship with you as the blessing itself. And so I pray for all of us today, whether we feel inadequate, as we feel adequate as parents or as uh, spouses, as we feel adequate as bosses and teachers and, uh, and whatever it is, Lord Jesus, we, we come with open hands and we say, we need you. Lord, we need you to fill our hands with your purpose, with your wisdom, with your guidance today. We just thank you, Jesus.
your name we pray. With every head bowed and eye closed, I just want to give you opportunity. Today, maybe you're here and you say, you know what, Pastor Jer, uh, you know, I've been listening to you for a little while now, uh, but I haven't made that decision to follow Jesus for myself. And maybe today you've made that decision years ago, but you haven't been living it out. And you say, I want to make that decision. I want to empty my hands of my own self-righteousness, of my own sin. I want to empty my hands and say, Jesus, I come to you. Open-handed, would you come and fill me, bless me. Anyone this morning, you say, that's me, Jerry. Would you pray for me as I give my life to Jesus today? Anyone on the far side over here? I want to give you that opportunity. In the middle section. Yes, thank you so much. That's an amazing decision at the back over there. Anyone on the side over here? Yes, praise God. Thank you. Yep, amen. Thank you. On the far side over here, don't want to miss anyone. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Baby, would, we, would you pray this with me? God, I come to you open-handed. I bring nothing to this relationship, but I respond to your love and to your invitation. And so would you bless me as I walk in your ways and I follow your leading. Bless me, Lord, and make me a blessing to others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.